me to jump in. So I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 1. The title of today's message is The Providence of God. Now I'm guessing that some of you have had the opportunity to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If not, I can't encourage it enough. In some respects, it's definitely sad to read of many atrocities that Christians have suffered over the years for their faith. But in other respects, it's extremely encouraging. There's just a real-life appreciation that one gains when reading stories, real-life historical accounts such as this. Whether it's an individual in Indonesia or China or India being tortured for their faith or in some respects giving their life actually for the cause of Christ, one is surely challenged to examine their own life in light of what we would deem our struggles in light of that. And that can be extremely helpful and encouraging along the way. Hopefully, by God's grace and the country that you know, we're blessed to live in, none of us will ever endure such severe circumstances or trials such as what we read in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Nevertheless, if ever faced with such extreme circumstances... We'd clearly be driven to live by faith, not just by sight. Why is that? Well, in circumstances such as this, even the strongest of men's allegiance is challenged. Amen? Would we only live by what we see as good on the service? Or in the midst of circumstances such as that, would we be able to cling to the promises of God in our valley of the shadow of death, so to speak, that these men and women have walked? Perhaps some of you even in this room have walked. You see, when life is... A bed of roses, if you will. When everything goes as planned, at least the way we see it should, it's much easier to proclaim our trust and our rest in God, is it not? What about even in somewhat lesser circumstances as opposed to life or death situations? For the best of us, in those circumstances, many of us at times are challenged in our faith. What about the loss of a job? What about an ill-advised decision that seems to bring difficult consequences? What about monumental decisions still to come in the future? Decisions that often shape the trajectory of our lives. 
These are nothing to be trifled with. No doubt, they're extremely important. Unfortunately, though, for some of us, in these type of situations, we experience stress. We experience anxiety. Or at least, an unhealthy obsession with wanting to know what is God's will in the midst of this circumstance. That in and of itself can be unhealthy if it leads to an obsession that becomes idolatrous. We could even look at a smaller example in the grand scheme of things. What about an unexpected power outage that ends up canceling three days of a scheduled and planned VBS? Many of us went through that exact circumstance this week. And many of us were probably on some level frustrated with this change of events. You see, at the end of the day, we all know life is full of a myriad of choices, big and small, with outcomes and consequences, big and small, that follow forth. From those choices, not to mention these decisions and these changes often affect us in monumental ways. Life is also about a curveball of changes. It's not just about the decisions that we make, but it's those unexpected things like a power outage and now we have to respond seems somewhat minuscule in the grand scheme of things as we began with the Fox's Book of Martyrs and those circumstances. That said, should these type of situations cause us to just sit back and not be concerned with how to wisely respond? Of course not. Many people in this room came together collectively, and thought about what we would do to respond to the loss of three days of a VBS. And in many respects, I'm excited to see what the Lord will do with those changes here in the near future. A Christian should wholeheartedly be someone who's concerned with making smart choices given any situation that arises. Nonetheless, today... God's word is going to challenge us to think about all of these type of situations from a bigger perspective. A perspective, I would argue, is perhaps one of the greatest comforts in the Christian life when it's rightly understood. Whether we use the, the phrase, the sovereignty of God, or the phrase that we're focused on today, the providence of God. You've heard me often quote it, but Spurgeon said that it was the pillow that we lay our head on to rest. As we've worked our way through this chorus of praise, beginning in verse 3, Ending in verse 14, 
We've seen the sovereignty of God in salvation throughout. Today, in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see another aspect of the sovereignty of God, and that is the title of this message, The Providence of God. If the sovereignty of God explains that God is in complete control of whatsoever comes to pass, then the providence of God is how he brings it to pass. We've spent much time over the last several weeks exploring the wonderful fruit that flows forth from the realization that God is sovereign in our salvation. Be that as it may. He didn't save us to trust in him alone, to boast in him alone. And then, after this wonderful experience of salvation, to live a life full of stress and anxiety with the details that follow. And let me be real, all of us are susceptible to that at times, amen, in our flesh. However, if we can fully embrace that God is sovereign in our salvation and that providentially he even, and we'll talk about this as we get there, worked circumstances that led to the salvation of our soul, how can we not fully embrace the fact that God is working all things for the good of his people and for his glory. That is, in essence, the theme of these two verses that we will see on full display here this morning. That is, that God directs all things for the good of his people and for his glory. In order to fully appreciate that statement, I want us to answer the question today, what is divine providence? I briefly explained or defined it to you. We'll unpack it. And then we'll answer also, what is the benefit? And oh, it's so rich, the benefit. We're going to look at three elements that pertain to this divine providence that pertain to this idea that I'm going to call is a fortress of a doctrine. And you might say, why do you use the word fortress, Pastor John? Well, it's because I believe with all of my heart that whether it's a life or death situation, a seemingly bad decision, an important consideration in life, or just simply an unexpected change, when we fully understand what divine providence entails, we have access to an impenetrable fortress against stress and anxiety. One that sets up a guard post for you, if, if you will, for the peace that surpasses all understanding, even in the valley of the shadow of death, so to speak, that we may walk 
That's what's available to you, beloved, in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 1. It's so good. It's so applicable. And it's so incredibly encouraging. With that said, would you stand with me, please? As we read the text for this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Amen. You may be seated. The first element of what is divine providence for us this morning is number one, the nature of providence. The nature of providence. Now, in each of these elements, I'm going to either give you a word or two words, or a phrase that will be the focus of each element. For this element, the nature of providence, the one word for us to focus on is personal. Personal. With that said, let's begin by examining this phrase in the first half of verse 11, obtained an inheritance. It's actually only one word, in the original language. Nevertheless, it has a clear and concise meaning, which is helpful for us as a verb. It's written in a way that fully communicates the sovereign providence of God in bringing this inheritance to his people. That is to say, we, the subject, received the inheritance. What's more? The controlling providence is understood in the fact that a supernatural choice or a divine intervention has taken place. If we use the natural illustration, we might say that there's an inheritance or a lot of land that is or was reserved and is now given to a special people. In order to demonstrate this even more, you don't need to turn there. You can write it down, reference it later, but I want us to hear two texts from the book of Deuteronomy. First, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29, we hear, yet... They are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, as Moses is ending the near, coming to the end of his life, we hear this. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. 
Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now, for even more clarification, Theological Journal for the New Testament describes this word as such. Ultimately, this use of the word is rooted in the Old Testament awareness of a God who exercises concrete control of history, leading the people into the land of Canaan and thus giving it its portion. Still continuing to unpack this phrase, obtained an inheritance. Think of it from a perspective as an, I might say, call it a possession. All of us have been gifted by the Lord with children. We should, first and foremost, think of our children as a gift from the Lord. They are His. And we have simply been called to steward them, to raise them in the fear of the Lord, in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Nonetheless, Regarding this possession, in some respects, they're also our possession. God has gifted them to us, but they are also our people. Our personal, there's that word, love for them is second to none. We would move heaven and earth, so to speak, in order to orchestrate good for them. Does that make sense? Friends, from an infinitely more grander, personal, and perfect scale, this is the nature of providence for you. Look down at Paul's prayer in verse 18 of chapter 1. It's his desire for the people in this context to understand this personal nature. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Or in that common Passage of Titus chapter 2 verse 14, we hear of this personal inheritance and possession designed for us. We read in that passage, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. A people who he is intimately concerned with. Here in our passage, the personal nature of providence pertains to, as the verse states, having been predestined according to his purpose. Now, as we saw in verse 5, this predestination relates closely with adoption. Adoption being in and of itself another wonderful example of the nature of providence. 
God, before the foundation of the world, chose you. And then along the way, we all, as born-again believers, can attest to the magnificent providence of God, even looking back and how this came to fruition, whether it be the relationships in our lives, the experiences in our lives, the trials in our lives. My mind goes to many that God was behind directing all. Now in hindsight, I can look back and see the hand of God leading to the salvation of my soul. I know each and every one of you can think and ponder on that great providence that is an evidence of this personal nature for God in his love, in his concern, in his care for you. Nothing would have ever thwarted the plan of God. You are his people, his possession. How magnificent is that? Divine providence would have its way. And then finally, what about this phrase, according to his purpose? As for this word purpose here, with God being used as the subject, it's only used five times in Scripture. And not surprisingly, I won't look at each of those passages, but whether it's here in Ephesians 1.11 or Romans 8.28, which I'm sure many of you could quote, one of my favorite verses, each one relates to the deeply personal concern of God for his people. A concern that fits perfectly with the theme that is on display that we've already identified. That God directs all things for the good of his people and his glory. This is the nature of divine providence. One which is intimately and personally concerned with you. Dear sister, dear brother. A people who are his own possession. A people in which he specifically chose, adopted, and redeemed. So, before we move to the second element, let's ask the question. Then what is the benefit of this personal nature of providence? How is it helpful Well, in many respects, I think it goes back to the fruits that we looked at concerning sovereign election. First and foremost, it's about an assurance. It's about a confidence. Think again of those providential circumstances that transpired and led to you being born again. I'll mention it again. Hindsight is 2020. Amen. 
we, we see so much clearer when we can look back and see the hand of God working in our lives and never ceases to amaze. When reflecting on the hand of God in bringing us to salvation, how can we not trust that God loves us in such a special and personal nature that he will continue to preserve you. Just had a wonderful conversation even this week with a friend of mine and his daughter who used to struggle and wrestle with assurance and then after coming to the realization of providence and the sovereignty of God, it's such a glorious truth that she rests at peace and because of It's because of his good and personal providence that we can affirm with conviction a psalm such as 55.22, a favorite that I often like to even sing in difficult times. It says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Confidence, assurance that God is working everything according to the counsel of his will. And he's doing it in a personal, intimate nature for you. What's more, how could we not be strengthened in our resolve for gospel proclamation as we discussed with sovereign election as well? Providentially, God is always moving the pieces of the puzzle in order to draw his people. And you know what? He uses us to be a means in that process. What a blessed privilege it is to be a means in the personal providence of not just his personal nature and providence for us, but for others. This drives us to want to be a witness for the Lord. Praise the Lord for those people that walked in this reality in our lives. Amen. Many of them come to name by by name, for you, as I'm sure they are, even obviously for me as I speak. Let that be a conviction, a commitment for us, a benefit of this personal nature of providence. So, if the personal nature of providence is indeed incredibly encouraging, In this second element, we're going to find a strength when you feel as though nothing's left. I promise you. And that's number two, the extent of providence. We said that we would have a phrase or words that would be our focus for each of these elements. It's two words. For this extent of providence found within this verse. All things. All things. 
Look at the second half of verse 11. When he says, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, before we unpack the extent of this all things, I want to briefly address, at times, an argument that is made contrary to what I am proposing to you this morning. The argument is made by some that given the context of this passage, this all things only applies to matters of salvation. That's to say that God works all things salvation-wise because of the context after the counsel of His will. There's an issue with that conclusion. It creates an overabundance of redundancy for Paul. Whether it's election or adoption or redemption or the inheritance that he mentions here, he has repeatedly said it is all of God's will and His kind intention. To do so again just doesn't make sense. Track with me. However, if the point of the clause, all things, is that God's saving work reflects exactly His providence in whatsoever comes to pass, it fits perfectly. Not to mention, the testimony of Scripture continues to communicate this, which we will see here briefly. This word, works, it's where we derive the English word energy from. God, according to His power and energy, is causing not just the salvation of His people to come to fruition, but all things after the counsel of His will. Oh, beloved, this is a significant statement worthy of intense consideration. Why is that the case? If it's rightly understood, it is a comfort beyond compare. If it's wrongly understood... It makes God the author of sin, which is blasphemous, heretical, and an impossibility. Amen? Nonetheless, I want to tackle this extent of providence from two perspectives. One being a much simpler perspective when it comes to the salvation of his people we've already laid this out extensively for weeks now that said 
I want us to look at several incidents outside of salvation. Remember, we're establishing the fact that the extent of providence entails all things. That said, keep your marker in Ephesians. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at several passages in the book of Isaiah. Concerning this extent of providence and the focus of all things. There are really, there are multiple passages that speak to this, but I would argue two cornerstone passages in all of Scripture with the rest doing nothing but building the argument behind. And that is Ephesians 1.11, our text for today. And Isaiah 46, you can turn there, verse 10. The word of the Lord proclaims, Isaiah 46, 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times which things have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The beginning to the end. God works all things after the counsel of his will. His purpose shall be established and he will accomplish all of it. Perfectly according to the providential and sovereign hand of God. Let me give you two others, and you can reference these for later. There are many others, but we'd be here all day, or we could just take a series on the providence of God for a whole month. Maybe we'll do that in the future. Such an encouraging doctrine. Psalm 115, verse 3 reads, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And then Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. These are just the tip of the iceberg concerning this easier perspective. Having said that, if God works all things from beginning to the end according to the counsel of his will, how do we find rest in life or death circumstances? How do we find peace when life unleashes the darkest 
and bleakest trials we could ever imagine. I'm sure some of those incidents in Fox of Books Martyrs, these men and women struggled and wrestled in their flesh with questions such as this. Some of you have gone through some very dark trials. You know, we understand the extent of providence in our blessing. We understand the extent of providence when everything goes according to how we have planned. But let us not forget, as Proverbs 16, 9 states, the heart of man plans his steps, but it is the Lord who establishes them. Now we come to the more difficult perspective. I mentioned that this element is one of the greatest comforts for the Christian. If I could piggyback off of Spurgeon's quote, I would say that it is a pillow for us to rest in an evening of nightmares. In order for us to see this, I want us to look at several accounts. You're already in the book of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. To set the context, the prophet is speaking to an idolatrous and rebellious people. And as he speaks to them, he speaks about the judgment of God that is about to rain down on his people. A judgment that comes by the hand of a wicked people, the Assyrians. With that context in place, look at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Friends. Do you hear what the text states? The Lord sent this wicked people as a means of judgment upon his own people. He states they are the rod of his anger, his fury. And yet, listen to how Assyria is described in verses 7 and 8, and then I'll skip down to 11. Yet it, it being Assyria, does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it 
is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? And then in verse 11, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Do you see it, beloved? God is providentially working all things after the counsel of his will, even the sinful actions of men. For Assyria, they desired destruction. It was in them. It's what they wanted. As for the Lord, though, why is he using this as a means of judgment? We could go so many places. My mind immediately goes to Habakkuk. Brother Steve and I spoke about that this week. You see the same historical account transpire in that book. But why is he using? Can you imagine what would have transpired? These people coming to bring judgment on God's people. Women, children, horrific slaughter. Look down at verses 20 through 23. Why? Now in the day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. This is massive, my friends. God is always working everything in order to accomplish good. Even for the nation of Israel, judgment was good. It brought forth the remnant. Those who would no longer trust in the one whose hand was upon them oppressively, but trust in the Lord and for those who would not repent and turn, if we can use New Testament language, what did Jesus say in Luke 13, 3? Unless you repent, likewise you will perish. God is good in his justice as much as he is his mercy and grace. As for Assyria, this sin... This wickedness, once again, we could go all throughout this chapter. It's, it's who they were. God was not, nor will he 
ever be the author of sin. Amen? Yet, he uses it to providentially always accomplish good. Let me give you two others to ponder, and then we'll drive the benefit of this extent of providence home. Imagine being Joseph, sold into slavery by your own brothers. Difficult circumstance indeed. Was this an act of random, evil chance? Was this a surprise to God? Was Satan the one who first purposed this act and God was simply an innocent bystander? Or does God work all things after the counsel of his will? Listen to Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Many of you know it. Joseph, as he's faced with his confrontation with his brothers, now says, as for you, you meant evil against me when they sold him into slavery. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people kept alive. Do you hear it? The text says, God meant it for good. He was in the midst of providentially even working out good in the midst of Joseph's own brothers selling him into slavery. God meant it for good. This was not a passive act. One more. Consider the most evil act mankind has ever witnessed. And no, it's not from Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, or any other genocidal leader that you could think of. It is the crucifixion of Christ. And what do we see with the extent of providence here? Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Verse 23. Acts 2.23 reads, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
Much like our passage in Isaiah. What do we see here? But the absolute, predetermined, and good, providential plan of God to send His Son to the cross. What else do we see? But the sinful actions of men. Godless men. So, my dear friends, why is this profound understanding such an anchor for your souls? This extent of providence that relates to all things from beginning to end. We all know we live in a fallen world. A world stained with sin. We will never escape trials. Some of them may stem from what seem to be simply a bad decision and the consequences that follow. We've been there. Some may be the most dire of circumstances. Some may even be the result of sinful circumstances. Nonetheless, my dear friends, as a believer in Christ, you know that God is working all things after the counsel of his will. And as a born-again believer in Christ, it's for your good and his glory. Some of us, even once again, in hindsight, have seen this so on display. And some of the most difficult circumstances we've faced at least on the human level, some of the worst decisions that we've made. Now looking back and seeing the hand of God using it to shape and to mold us more into His image. So, before we briefly turn our attention to the final element of divine providence let me encourage you and drive this benefit home with a quote from the 19th century theologian B.B. Warfield he said and I quote a firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all life's troubles the universal providence of God, that God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. You can rest in that, brother, sister, and the Lord. You can trust, no matter what your circumstance, blessing, difficult, or just middle of the road, wherever you're at. God is personally intimately working all things for your good and for his glory.
That said, our third and final element is number three, the result of providence, the result. Now we'll look at verse 12. I want to read this verse in the order that it's in the Greek text. I think this will be more helpful for us to grasp this last element. This is the original order of the text. Paul says, to the end that would be to the praise of his glory, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Now, we won't spend a great deal of time on this last element. And it's certainly not because of its lack of its importance. It's just that we have covered it numerous times in previous messages. That said, if we were to focus on one phrase for this final element, the result of providence, it would simply be the glory of God. The glory of God. Whether it's election, redemption, or the providence of God in all things. Everything is for His honor and glory. To the praise of His glory. As for the phrase, we who were the first to hope. In verse 12. In all reality, it, it's, it's more of an intensification, not a reference to time. Better understood as we who were hoping firmly in Christ. That said, what about us then? Are we hoping firmly in the providence of God? Certainly when we do so, we reflect more the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God. By his working and his energy, he will surely bring that to pass, even though we still fall short at times. Nevertheless, let us never neglect our responsibility to trust and to rest in the providence of God. No matter what your lot is, know that He is working all things after the counsel of His will from the beginning to the end for your good and for His glory, more importantly. How do we do that, though? Ultimately, it begins with an understanding that the providence of God is not just about the nature and the extent. Oh, yes, it's deeply personal. It's all-encompassing. And in that, we take the greatest of comfort. Amen? I've tried to pour out my heart in that for you, that we would all collectively take great comfort in this personal, all-encompassing providence. Nonetheless, and more importantly, 
It's about the result to the praise of His glory. Hallelujah. When we take our eyes off ourselves, the things of this world begin to fade away. We begin to experience that peace which surpasses all understanding and a trust that we know the providence of God will have its way in our life. Let me close with a final quote from Mr. Warfield again. And I quote, In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of His divine plan. Nothing however small, however strange, occurs without His ordering or without its particular fitness, its place in the working out of His purpose. And the end of all shall be the manifestation of His glory and the accumulation of His praise. That's the end of of it all. We can trust, we can rest as believers in Christ and a God that works all things for the good of his people and for his glory. Amen. Be encouraged in that, dear friends. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you We thank you that you care for us in such a personal way, Lord, that you providentially are working according to the counsel of your will for the good of us, Lord, and for your glory. We've seen that in the salvation of our souls, Lord, for a people who had nothing to offer you You gave of yourself because of your kind intention, because of your will, according to your providential and sovereign hand. Lord, we thank you that everything from the beginning to the end will be accomplished in your purpose. Lord, would you strengthen us here today to live with confidence, assurance, and hope because of this ultimate set-in-stone decreed reality. And Lord, would you help us to live a life that is concerned with your glory and your praise and your honor in order that the world might see this great God in whom we serve. In the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And all the church said,